Welcome, everyone, to the Watchmen podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial podcast for Watchmen on HBO. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Hello, everyone. The Watchmen podcast by Fantastic Geek pulls off our masks for episode 106, This Extraordinary Being. Pete, in this, the week of giving thanks, at least in these United States, thank you to those who rallied to our call on the Mandalorian podcast feed, sending those reviews to us on Apple Podcasts and your other listening platforms. Pete, going to put out a similar rallying cry here for Watchmen. If you have not left us a review, please do. Yes, it takes seconds to go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating out of five stars. I'd certainly prefer all five of them, but if you feel that we're worthy of less, you know what? I may not agree with you, but I will fight for your right for that opinion. Uh, we're going to make it worth your while, Matt. We're going to be giving away a special Watchmen theme prize to anyone who has left a review on Apple Podcasts. So longtime listeners will know, leave that review and then make sure you get in touch with us through Facebook or Twitter or uh, Gmail, yeah, email, uh, to just let us know what your username is so we can pull it, uh, pull it out of the hat if you are the winner uh, with the winning review and, uh, and get some sweet stuff. This being the 161st Fantastic Geek podcast episode of the year, Matt, uh, the day before Thanksgiving, I... And I know I speak for Matt. want to thank our listeners, our patrons, our reviewers, the people who tweet at us and with us for all of this TV here. Could not do it without you. We're absolutely thankful for you. Uh, 161, and we haven't even hit December yet. Definitely going to be hard to uh, surpass for a seventh straight year in 2020. But uh, we're certainly going to try bringing you all that good content. Yes, thankful to have all these great listeners, thankful to be podcasting these variety of shows here. Even Pete, thankful somebody on Twitter had reached out, hey, it was either Mandalorian or Watchmen, I couldn't remember, hey, where's your presence with that podcast on uh, on Stitcher? And I said, oh my goodness, that's one of those things that fell through the cracks, boom, now available on Stitcher as well. So thankful for that whole that whole listener community helping keep us alert keep us going and keep us uh rolling along here after all these episodes and oh only about 20 to go before the end of the calendar year is that all Exhaled smoke turns yellow watchmen into purple Minutemen as a pair of FBI agents sweat out hooded justice in an interrogation room. The good agent tells H.J. it all started with him. He's the alpha pal. It was his idea to put on the mask and fight crime. As fellow enforcers of the law, he's got to tell him it is an honor to sit across from him right now. He took down Captain Axis and King Mob and Moloch the Magnificent, the worst villains in the city, all in jail because of him and his buddies, the Minutemen. They're true American heroes, all of yous, but most of all, Hooded Justice because he was the foist. 
And they do have questions, though. What's the story with the noose around his neck? Is the sign he's an executioner or PG-13 podcast here? Sex stuff. Won't he take yep. his mask off, though? Uh, they know what he does. They know who he does, including Captain Metropolis. Uh, the latter has footage of his boyfriends, including one that looks like, but is not, Jagger Hoover. I think it's Jagger Hoover. The deal is this. Hooded Justice will get the pictures back, the picture that he will give of himself, and the cops will make everything go away. Will H.J. play ball? Pete, will he play ball? He sighs. He removes that hood. Uh, not dissimilar from what we would expect underneath. Well, well, ain't he pretty? Jerry's going to do the honors here. But as he's asked to say cheese... Jerry gets punched in the face. There's a chair that's kicked. There's a chair that's thrown. Agent not Jerry cowers under the table and then is dragged and punched. And it ends with both of the agents deliciously tossed together as hooded justice says cheese. In the present day, we hear stop watching American hero story guys. And I think Obviously, for dedicated viewers of the show, it was clear that this was uh, from American Hero Story before that moment. And I marvel at how Watchmen as a show has had that balance to kind of have it sort of over the top, but over the top like a comic book movie without being so over the top that it's parody and they just kind of nail the tone here. But back in the world of the show, Agent Blake is on the prowl off to see Angela we quickly get the title card, This Extraordinary Being. Uh, and then we get some timely exposition. Does Angela know how nostalgia works? Memories harvested and put back in one at a time. It was started as a residential treatment, then expanded. Then people got hooked. The company had to stop. Hey, Lady True's company. Maybe it's all connected. Hashtag is it all connected? Uh, maybe Angela's about to go on a memory trip. They need to pump her stomach, but they need her signature first. She has to do it before she turns into a vegetable, Pete. They need her signature first, but she's not going to do it. Drum roll. And then we transition into black and white here. It's starting. So we clearly know there is a body of the episode that will be different. Um, just the the way this is shot and the way that music is used throughout the the piano here playing the descending scale that we saw back in the pilot episode here um we've already been told you're not supposed to take somebody else's nostalgia this her grandfather will reeves um medication um and even then it's it's not you know healing medication so much as it is you know, described as having been for dementia patients and, and that kind of thing to relive the memories. Um, quick shot of Bass Reeves taking off his hood as Angela is asked if she knows where her grandfather is. And then she falls into a seat as the only police officer of color in black and white and then fades into the black and white. It's 1938. Congratulations, cadets, visible on the wall behind her as the police chief congratulates a graduating class. I think we would be well served at this point to kind of have a 
catch-all acknowledgement of the fantastic use of uh, black and white. A little bit later on, we'll get drips and drabs of color. Similarly, the uh, practical camera work, at times close up on Angela, move to somebody else, continuing the shot, go back. We have the actor playing young Will and vice versa. That is throughout the episode, really, really well done. There's also times, I suspect, where they're doing a similar move, but they're using somebody to hide a cut as they cut between two scenes, but make it look to uh, make it look like it's one scene, even though now the background has changed or whatever it might be. I think if we stopped and covered every single one, Pete, this might be our first three-hour podcast, but here, as good a place as any to just say, this is unusually well-planned camera work. This is just a top-notch visual presentation uh, from director Stephen Williams, who we have seen many, many times before in the comic book TV show genre. And the chief is explaining to the cadets here via the viewer. He wants them to think about what they're wearing, uh, about what they put on when they wake up, what they take off when they go to bed it's that dual meaning it's the mask it's the identity of the police uniform here that it changes a man this as angela is reliving will's memories taking on that duality as well make sure yours changes you for the better huh some foreshadowing and uh god bless you for taking the oath and then we pan back to young will uh who is now Angela, and as you mentioned before, the great way that that is cut in, hidden throughout the episode, um, as they're preparing to uphold the law and honor the badge. Uh, with that, the badges are uh, not even handed out, pinned out one by one. We do see that the police chief skips over Will, and uh, it ultimately is another officer of color who uh, is the Lieutenant one Battle, a real life figure the first black officer of the nypd well and it is lieutenant battle who tells young will to beware the cyclops uh and then battle quickly moves on this whole time angela flitting in and out of uh the memory at least in a physical sense uh later will is out to dinner wondering if his lady friend thinks he's sold out uh, she said that she's actually worried what he'll do with his newfound power. After all, he's an angry man, and he has a right to be angry. Uh, he's focused on the future, and that is why he is so angry. Yes, and we find out that this is June, and that she works uh, as a journalist for the new Amsterdam News. Later, still, Pete, again, very fluid sense of time here. Uh, we see young Will walking his beat. There's news uh, in the newspapers of Nazis on the march, so firmly uh, giving us a sense of time. Uh, speaking of Nazi-like people, Pete, uh, he sees an unworried man firebomb a Jewish deli. Will promptly arrests him. The man gives his name as Fred. Fred tells the booking officer back at the precinct that it's a case of mistaken identity uh, and he ultimately is backed up, uh, Will is backed up by a fellow officer, but Will sees and we see uh, that fellow officer giving giving the okay symbol, maybe a little uh, pinky in there as well, but uh, certainly, I dare say, unfortunately, a, a symbol that we are uh, a bit familiar with in the modern era now. Uh, and Pete, that takes us to the next day where life imitating art, imitating life imitating art, what is Will reading? 
he's reading Superman, um, or rather the, uh, the gentleman at the newsstand, the German accented, uh, gentleman is, and explained to Will here that it beats the news a little more hopeful. You know, there was, uh, a boy, a baby, the father, uh, sent him in a rocket ship to earth just before his planet explodes. We get these flashbacks to, uh, will as a child, we had noted in the pilot, the obvious parallels to Superman that I think strengthened here. If will is Superman, obviously, uh, June, the journalist is Lois Lane. And I think if in those earlier episodes, they were going to take a little inspiration from the Superman story, you know what, lean into it, particularly in the world of Watchmen where, we know uh, Superman and Batman were comics in the world of Watchmen. And then when these hooded people took over, these comics fell away, turned into the pirate comics and so forth. Um, you know, of course, we see in the novel. So you have this as a common uh, point. So why not why not lean into it fully, I guess is what I'm saying. It's something that I really, really appreciate this this presence of Action Comics number one. Uh, indeed, Pete, I guess if Hooded Justice is the father of all these superheroes. I guess it makes Superman the grandfather in a, in a spiritual sense, but all of this interrupted when Will spots Fred again, seemingly just out enjoying freedom on the streets back at the precinct. No one seems to remember anything about this guy that was supposedly brought in last night, slightly off to the side. The deck Sergeant pleads with Will, let it go and go home. Day turns tonight, and we see Will walking home. Three on-duty cops pull on up and ask Will to come out for beers. There's just the feeling of something sinister in the air. Will turns them down, maybe another time. Uh, and as Will turns down an alley, the other time is about to be right now. Yeah, this intercut, of course, between the precinct where he steps out the door and he's instantly on the street, the way that they, you know, position that transition and then seeing the cop car drive away the first time, dragging two bodies. They're giving you all the, the clues that dread is coming. Uh, the car screeches. These three cops get out. Another time ain't going to work for them, Matt. And Will is beaten. He's kicked. There's darkness. Suddenly we, we see him dragged before a tree. There's a noose and a hood. Uh, and Will gasps as he is raised from this point of view perspective that I have to say was really, really jarring. It was. I mean, the whole this whole episode clearly built to kind of stop Stop fooling around with costumed heroes and things of that sort, though we obviously get, you know, the uber costume hero in it. But this episode clearly built to be serious and to be in your face and to be provocative and to be interestingly presented. And we get all of that here in this uh, half lynching. I say half lynching because, of course, he's only held up for a moment and then brought down and freed. He's told to stay out of the business of white folks or next time he won't be cut down. Uh, and we see him walking home, holding the hood, still wearing the noose. Uh, it's then that uh, he comes across a couple being attacked. He puts on the hood and uh, takes out three baddies in pretty savage uh, fashion. A really, 
I mean, I don't want to say nice because it's more than that. There's an emotional resonance here and we're understanding this formation of the now multi-layered hooded justice. But as a bit of fight choreography, this is not only a savage fight, this is one that, you know, has that emotional payoff and I think uses a couple camera tricks to make it seem a bit longer than it is. But that just adds to the joy as a viewer and I think the visceral the visceral energy that you're getting through will as this justice gets uh, gets levied out close up on the eyes as is done to tremendous effect throughout this episode. And then we're in room three thirteen. Uh, will admitting to June, he is angry. He cries, they embrace and Angela is subbed in again to remind you it is she who is experiencing her grandfather's memories. Camera goes out the windows. The curtains blow. It's morning. Will wakes on the couch. June is coming in from the kitchen. It's 3 o'clock already. She's already been to work and back. She didn't want to wake him. He's hurting, but he was in the paper this morning. They're calling him a hero. Yes, and he says that uh, though he's being called that hooded savior, he's not sure why he put that hood back on. Uh, trust in the law seems to have ended, though. Uh, why is that? Well, Will recaps what we saw at the top of the series. Uh, then we see more, which is to say the uh, the black and white movie, the silent movie of the uh, the sheriff being revealed as a cattle thief uh, and Bass Reeves being the one to... Uh, to stop this corrupt local official the townsfolk wanted the sheriff strung up but no says bass reeves trust in the law no mob justice today the camera comes off the wall where this has been projected into the makeup mirror with will uh having the makeup all around his eyes reverse image from what angela does uh as sister knight blacking out around her eyes and now made to look like a white person no wonder they thought hooded justice was caucasian and i feel pete like the the completion here where with this application of the makeup uh it is something that in universe is now 100 percent explainable as to why hooded justice had been perceived white uh within the universe of the show and and was not also how it kind of rewrites the graphic novel all of this uh using our expectations certainly in the graphic novel era of the story uh using our expectations against us in a way that uh, i dare say damon lindelof is familiar with i think back to rose and bernard no one expected bernard to be caucasian until he walked out of the back of that abandoned station thereby you know in, in a in a healthy way the audience being shamed for its own sense of uh, preconceptions. Here, too, we get that. I know in the world of the show, in our journey in the show, this is something that we have predicted, and this is something where, you know, it could have been makeup or it could have been whatever it might be, but similar tools here to say, don't assume something is a certain way just because that's what your comfort level is. Right. And June had asked Will here, you know, what color those townsfolk were in the film that it needed to be the same way here, um, that if they found out that he was not white, 
he was not going to be their hero anymore. So he had to go with the masquerade. And it's just a wonderful shot of the mirror held up. And again, it's Angela in the reflection. And Pete, I know that I I had the self-imposed rule of not drooling over all the camera moves too much, but here, such a simple one. It's just the mirror is turned ever so slightly as uh, Regina King is to the left of the young Will actor, and they have all the, the mirror angles worked out perfectly, and you just get to see it happen naturally in camera. And it's just, you know, it's an easy trick, but it's a good one. Um with this notion, though, that Will is going to get justice as hooded justice, he starts going after Fred, the arsonist, who's got a store in Queens. Uh, more on that later. And wow. Um, how does this fit into the beware the Cyclops thought, though? Uh, Will, as hooded justice, scopes out the store and makes his way in. Uh, Klansmen get beaten in the best way possible in this scene. He goes through their maps, uh, the book on mesmerizing the masses. One of those downed clansmen ends up hopping up, and uh, Will beats the man into the store floor, uh, that being, of course, kind of the front portion of the store. Fred is there in his market, uh, takes out a shotgun. With that, Will jumps out the window. Time slows, then stops. This is a no-motion shot that is epic indeed. When we first went into slow motion, it was like, okay, har har, slow motion watchman. Good job, Zack Snyder. But there's something otherworldly, in part because of what's about to happen next in terms of injecting the present day into this flashback narrative. Just a couple details with what happened in the back portion of the market. These uh, cities that are checked here, Portsmouth and Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Williamsburg, Cincinnati, Richmond, Norfolk, Middletown, Cleveland, Atlantic City. Um, the lettuce in the market that the last Klansman knocks over before Hooded Justice needs to jump through that front glass window bullet time style. And here comes Lori to attempt to break Angela free of the spell of the nostalgia. Yes, Pete, this confluence here of the stopping of the flashback as uh, as there's an attempt to to bring her out of this uh, this nostalgic haze. Uh, Will sees Agent Blake coming up to Angela. Uh, this notion here that Angela is coming out of a coma. She still is in the present. Can Angela hear Lori? Uh, blink, yes. We get the blink. Uh, Cal is here to read something to pull her out of it. Uh, we have dialogue suggesting, not even suggesting outright, saying that Angela is staring out in, you know, in the hospital room. Uh, she is staring out. So Will gets into her view. He affirms where she was born, who he is, their marriage, their children, the year being 2019. The president is Robert Redford. Come home now. The president is, and she fades away back into the past where Roosevelt is the president. A fantastic transition back to our flashback here. The acting that Regina King does with her eyes alone, with the blinking, uh, just so well done. That transition back 
maybe, maybe Eleanor Roosevelt can save us. And there's a knock. Speaking of saviors, Matt, is that Nelson Gardner, a.k.a. maybe Captain Metropolis? Well, I don't know how anyone could put that together. Side note, I love that they pick up the idea that he thinks he's so slick that he can have the two identities acting as the press man, uh, the agent for Captain Metropolis. And we know from the graphic novel that uh, that uh, Silk Spectre 1 and her husband you know, saw through it quickly as well. But knock, knock, who's there? Nelson Gardner. He wants to talk one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, however, June won't be leaving the table. Uh, Gardner's there on behalf of Captain Metropolis. Uh, and he'd like to form a team. The new Minutemen, it's a great group of fellows, and some ladies, too. Can't hooded justice join? Captain Metropolis has figured it all out. A cop is feeding hooded justice information, and Officer Reeves is that cop because, Pete, it couldn't possibly be anything else, and that is when June starts to laugh. Yeah, and uh, to just bounce off your point before, who would be silly enough to be their own PR person. But anyway, uh, the circular movement around the kitchen table, really selling the conspiratorial tones here, uh, these, these underground criminal organizations. And of course, we know that Will Reeves is really on the tails of one, this Cyclops organization, um, and, uh, of course, uh, Nelson Gardner knows nothing about it. However, he does give some interest. Maybe it's a job for the new Minutemen. Uh, why fight alone when you could get true companionship? It is June that says no to that. Uh, Pete, then cut to a later time, a different place, from June's no to Gardner saying yes, 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 will behind him. Afterwards, both men are in bed, less secrets than before. Uh, the Minutemen would be thrilled for him to join. They, of course, can't know his secret, though. They can't know that he's a black man. Uh, he'll have to be covered up. Uh, and indeed, Pete uh, Gardner interested in maybe uh, costumes next time in the boudoir as well. Cut back to Will kissing his wife. A lot to digest there. Yeah, a whole new meaning, certainly, to the term costumed adventurer. But really, what this does, beyond the ha-ha at the beginning of the episode, okay, we had from the graphic novel that Hooded Justice was reputed to have been into S&M, um, the, the overtones of homosexuality there done mockingly, here used as legitimate story fodder and the self-loathing that a uh, black homosexual man in the 1930s and 40s must have been feeling as the minority of minorities to go through that with the baggage of being a survivor of the Tulsa massacre uh, just really amps up the pathos of Will's story. And you mentioned the massacre. We get some flashback also elements that are, that appear in the physical scene as well. in this great 
visual presentation that we've uh, that we've discussed before but we get this flashback to the tall grasses to Tulsa on fire to uh, youngest will finding a baby wrapped in an American flag and uh, the revelation here that the baby was June now June pregnant with her own baby yeah and the transition here to my echo my shadow and me as he's putting the makeup on we see a clipping that 22,000 Nazis have held a rally in Madison Square Garden, much like Lieutenant Battle, uh, a real occurrence. Uh, that goes into the old Cyclops red folder there. And then flashbulbs, the introduction of the OG HJ uh, before the assembled press here. I love that they soft pedal the Minutemen that we don't need to do. And, and HBO has released a picture of all the Minutemen posed together, but we can see the comedian is behind him. We can see Night Owl is there. You can definitely make out Mothman's antennae. You can see silhouette, but it's not about them. And it's the best way to tell this story. We've been pretty rough on old Zack Snyder and his movie in the past. Uh, I can say without any sense of sarcasm, the title sequence for Watchmen, certainly a contender for the best in the history of cinema. Similarly, one of the best montages in all cinema. And I mean that with a pinky up cinema kind of sense, not just, you know, comic book movies or fun movies, man. Uh, really, really, it's a, it's a work of art. And I think that this story is best served to not be evocative of that, to not go for the photo moment, because you can't outdo what was, in my view, the best part of that movie, the credits. Uh, so to avoid it entirely and to have, as you say, Pete, bits and pieces that are out of focus or in the periphery, that's the route to go, because the story here is not, hey, Minutemen come together, it's the individual relationship between Captain Metropolis and Hooded Justice, the notion that uh, Captain Metropolis is now shining the light on this new, uh, this, you know, maybe not new uh, costumed adventurer, but this person who's joined the group and all of that. And most importantly, that we're, we're not going to talk about the club. Oh, actually, we're going to talk about Moloch and the Sun Stealer um, and then talk about the fantastic support from National Bank, now with racist ads. That's what the scene is about, not having this moment of, oh man, do you remember when Mothman showed up in 1985 at the reunion in the, in, in the comic book? Because that's not what this story is about. Yeah, this being, of course, the, the reason for them meeting to introduce the hero that was the inspiration for all of them to get into costume adventuring. And he winds up leaving it uh, upset, unfulfilled. Um, whereas suddenly he's putting on his makeup. June is typing. She has a baby bump. Great use of the sets here to show passage of time. She emerges from behind the partition with a child, then uh, comes running in with uh, an older uh, little boy reading to him. She's making dinner as Will continues applying his makeup, this time with the child, later revealed to be Marcus Abar, Angela's uh, father, 
watching more clippings go into the old Cyclops folder there. There was a mob lynching of a black man. There's another partially obscured headline that says someone, it's not uh, identifiable who, spotted at a Klan rally. And then he closes it before there are fire bells. And we're outside the Capitol Theater with the marquee showing the secret life of Walter Mitty in Technicolor. Yes, and it's a little unclear initially as to whether a riot is about to happen or has happened, but certainly as we advance into the scene, it's clear that we are in the still simmering after effects. Uh, Will Reeves, as a police officer, is sent in to calm the African-American crowds. Uh, We see bodies mostly. There's a, a woman crying. He talks to Lorna. She describes seeing a flicker on the screen and then hearing a voice in her head, perhaps, that told her to hurt people. Uh, Will quickly intuits that Cyclops is using film projectors to turn people of color against each other. He phones it in to Nelson Gardner. Well, there's the man who leaves with the projector, too. I think it's more than intuition. Great catch there, Pete. Absolutely. That the, the, the frame of this conspiracy is certainly clearly presented. Uh, Will phones it into Nelson Gardner inside the time-appropriate phone booth. But, of course, phone booth, superhero, we're back in some Superman territory here. Uh, But Gardner says that the people of Harlem riot all on their own. The idea of the Klan using mind control is quickly brushed off. And ultimately, Gardner is saying that this sort of thing just isn't the Minutemen's cup of tea. Yeah, he'll have to solve black unrest all on his own. And your heart just breaks here. He's joined this larger group with the promise of help and gets none. Prior to this, that projector loaded into a uh, car bearing the name FT and Sons. Uh, And indeed, Will steps out of the photo booth and runs into the presumed FT, Fred, Uh, And Fred offers this police officer who he may or may not recognize uh, some free stakes in the warehouse. Um, They're, in fact, in front of that warehouse, Fred's warehouse. Uh, The camera goes from Will to Fred, stays there for a minute. Maybe here the camera cheats ever so slightly because we don't see what's going on off camera and kind of nor does Fred, if you will, even though Fred is looking at him, uh, we only know what Fred, or Fred only knows what we know, rather. Uh, Then we know that Fred has been shot in the head. Uh, Will, having pulled the trigger, Will then dons the mask, heads into the warehouse where he is shooting men. He sees plans for the projector mechanism. He enters a recording room. Uh, A man is speaking into the microphone, encouraging viewers to attack and to hate This is, in fact, Pete, the man uh, uh, who was the cop from Fred's booking who had given the OK symbol. Will is out of bullets and instead chokes the man with his own microphone cable. A fitting end, I dare say. Great use of color in the previous part of the scene where the recording light is blinking above the door. A visual cue as to what we're about to see. Um very reminiscent of the black freighter uh will then piles the bodies and takes gasoline and a match to them he grabs one projector 
and outside watches the flames consume the building, intercut with a flashback of Tulsa burning, and takes his hood off. Once back home, Will sees his son putting on the white eye makeup and hooded justice outfit. He is going to be just like Daddy. Will angrily tries to wash him. Uh, June is now yelling at Will. He's the monster who's been fed. Uh, June is going to take Marcus home to Tulsa. Will is not invited. Uh, Will, indeed, not eager to return to Tulsa. And he ends up just holding the rope, sadly. Uh, And Pete, we finally now come back to 2019. Yes, the transition from the noose in his hands to the noose in old Will's hands in the wheelchair on the side of the road. We see Police Chief Judd Crawford's car speed to a halt. He walks higher chain and where we had seen the flashlight before what this does very very well bringing us with the knowledge of the past that it's not just the flashlight it turns into the strobe and uh now under the power of his suggestion uh through the light there tells him to push him up to the tree he's going to do everything that he says at the tree he turns it off and uh Judd asks what's happening, who he is. Will will only tell him that he is justice. Um, But that uh, Judd maintains he doesn't understand that he's trying to help you people, Matt, Um, that they don't really know what's going on there. But we have the flashback to the Klan robe with the police badge in his closet which uh, Will points out is there. Uh, Judd doesn't deny it, says that it's his his grandfather's, that he has a right to it. We get a flashback to that photo of him as a child with the grandfather and the notion that it's his legacy, which Will calls out. If you're so proud of it, why would you hide it? Uh, Indeed, uh, Will gives him that okay symbol as well. Uh, the strobe light starts up again. Judd can hang himself now. Will slash Angela hands Judd the rope. Uh, and we see Judd uh, starting to string himself up indeed. Off camera, I say, uh, I would add, uh, thankfully off camera, Crawford steps off and we hear him gasping and struggling. Uh, faces start to appear and one woman says that she will take Will slash Angela home. And that brings us to the present day. Uh, when Angela awakens, fully Angela again, a tube in her arm, Lady True watching over her, saying, welcome back. Let's open up the crank file to dive into some of those crackpot theories. Pete, Will, earlier in the episode, was brought into room 313. That's the same room as Neo was brought to at the end of The Matrix, Similarly, we are seeing a sort of uh, Neo of color in this episode, if you will. I'll add to it, Pete, a reminder that Will Smith was heavily courted to play Neo in The Matrix before passing on it. Uh, I have to wonder how the dialogue over that philosophical action film would have been different with a black savior. Here, certainly, we are getting one in this episode. Yeah, and the reference the blue pill the red pill there the the room number uh the acknowledgement of the truth as opposed to 
histories lie that's taken place here bears mentioning that the title of the episode itself this extraordinary being is a comic reference to hooded justice a lot of people saw that and they're like it's it's the dr manhattan episode it's happening and yeah this is not what this is about with the new footage that we get of judd here i think First of all, there must be some basic human sympathy towards the predicament that he finds himself in at the end of his life, kind of suddenly now, you know, uh, being suffocated to death. But is Judd partially redeemed in this episode, this notion of the clan robe as part of his legacy? Can that be read in a way that it's a it's a negative legacy that he's trying to outstrip or is there a pride there? So is Judd better or worse off? Uh, in our minds after this episode? I think he's the same. Owning the uh, the clan robe is not the same as owning up to it. It's hidden, and Will points that out. I think the bigger question that we've really got to think about is, did Will murder him? What with the use of the Cyclops strobe light? Or did he take his own life. I mean, in a manner of speaking, it lowers Will to the level of the Cyclops organization looking to sow this black unrest in these different areas. At the same time, he believes in probably some misgotten sense that he is justice, that he is retribution. Well, I think within the frame of the comic book genre i think in, to my mind we can squarely say this was murder on the part of will i certainly i understand your point let's say let's take it out of the comic book genre and bring it squarely to ours how would a jury look at this you know how how much is will culpable for i guess it depends on the science of mesmerism that exists in our world which to my knowledge is you know a lot of uh you know hokey stuff in ancient religion that kind of that kind of thing um but again i think in their world this is up and up murder and this is how a hundred and something year old pete if we're even still allowed to count things by 100s there's been some debate in the news lately as to why if you have less than 100 can't you call it a century etc cetera, etc cetera. but i digress i'm sure we won't be returning to anybody in that arena in this theory segment um but yeah, Will guilty of murder, uh, to my mind, for sure. Now, does he see himself as a hero? No question. I'm not quite sure that, based on the evidence I've seen, I don't know that Judd deserves to be lumped in with the, uh, with the Cyclops people from the 1930s. Um, I think that's what makes this compelling, that we as an audience member, we can, we can agree on a lot about this show. We can agree a lot about justice. We can be, uh, agree a lot about racism, but I'm not sure we can agree where Judd falls in all of that. The shades that it's delivered with, that he references the African-American experience, referring to them as those people that he's some type of savior that he's trying to help them still not viewing them through any kind of lens of equality and i think that's very important to note and for all the kindness all the camaraderie he shared with angela 
and Panda and Red Scare. Um, you know, he was the chief. He was the one they saluted, never viewed as the same. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Well, Pete, now let's let's take things a bit more seriously if we haven't been there already. Uh, about to dive into a theory that's been discussed on the internet this week about this episode. So I guess, Pete, dear listener, if you're somebody who easily gets triggered, we're about to we're about to dive deep here. Uh, I think in a in a in an intelligent way. So, Pete, what was that bombshell article that you sent my way a day or two ago? Yes, a number of people picked up between the name of the uh, racist gentleman who firebombs the Jewish delicatessen, and then has plenty to say to Will and later about blacks in general. Um, he gets into FT and Sons uh, truck. That's the name on the warehouse as well. Um, seems very plainly that this is meant to be Fred Trump, who owned a market in Queens. Add to that the the fact that um, that one of the writers from the show, that being Claire Keitchell, uh, had tweeted, look up who owned Queen's first supermarket, hashtag Watchmen, that being Fred Trump. Uh, to my mind, uh, Claire Keitchell's tweet takes this theory from an interestingly provocatively constructed package that may or may not be clickbait on Vox and... Uh, that VOX, not FOX, um, and pushes it into the realm of, uh, yes, I might not have written this episode, but this writer's room knows what they did. Uh, and I don't know. When I read this article that was putting together the the, the footwork here to to bring this together as a as a salient take on the episode, I mean, I legitimately gasped out loud and said, "Oh my goodness!" out loud because. To my mind, this is this is something that the show did intentionally, and this is a this is a blow that they struck on purpose. And it's far more nuanced than, let's say, taking a kick at J. Edgar Hoover in the opening moments of the episode. Okay, long reputed to have been closeted and you know, cross-dressing, that's low-hanging fruit. And that's what American Hero Story does and perhaps it does best. This, a really meta take. We're not going to go over the top and, you know, give a full name, but it's enough if you're eagle-eyed and that they give it to you in a couple places and you add it all up. Very clearly a statement here. Um, you know, this episode was filmed at the height of the Jesse Smollett scandal. And uh, there was some concern as they were doing it, though it had been written beforehand, was that too on the nose. And with the flavor of this, I mean, it's been amazing how different each episode of Watchmen has been from each other episode and to give you this one largely done in black and white set in a period, uh, the, the number of techniques employed, the, the high end point of the narrative 
And to throw in a detail like this, I mean, let's be honest. We knew when Lindelof wrote the letter that he was uh, going to do Watchmen, that this wasn't going to be a retread, rather a remix. And he said they would be dealing with events and people of today through the lens of what had happened before. And I can't think of a better way they could have approached this. Add to that, I think Lindelof really embracing the notion of, you know, though being the white, straight, show-running male that is the, uh, you know, such a common force in Hollywood, I take him at his word that he's embraced the idea of, and I want to bring in other perspectives, and I want to help tell other stories, and I want to be a facilitator as much as I want to be, you know, the, the, the quarterback and the head coach and the owner, etc., uh so to have this show that's been commenting on race since the first episode to now bring it into flashbacks to you know to to brush against the 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 present day shall we say i think if nothing else it shows a it shows an openness to kind of tackle all of these things head on uh, even in an atmosphere where I'm sure there must have been voices at HBO either directly to him or just at the water cooler saying, you know, as this episode is being made, hey, we're in the middle of this sale to AT&T and we don't want to, you know, we don't want to upset regulators in New York. We don't want to upset other people in Washington. And the fact that this this product of the writing room, this product of Lindelof's writing room made it to the screen in this episode the way it did, I think that is certainly to be applauded. And if this, to this point in the series, not saying that it couldn't be episode seven, eight, or nine, isn't their Emmy show reel, I don't know what will be. I mean, I have no doubt that this episode will be a, a driving factor uh, for when Watchmen gets a Best Drama nomination and even if the show falls up a little short there, I think this episode is going to be one that has multiple nominations for writing, cinematography, directing, you know, sound, music, etc. Uh, this is one of the landmark episodes of the 2019-2020 television season. To keep it with the theme that we're looking at right now, so Nelson Gardner, when... Um, Will calls him on the phone to let him know the, the full scope of this vast, insidious conspiracy, tells him that he'll have to deal with black unrest all his own, that the Minutemen won't be coming in for this particular mission. Again, right out of the comics here, out of the, uh, the, the panel where that is burned away on the map. And to add to that, part of the PTpedia trove this week was the handwritten will of Nelson Gardner, written in 1971, obviously ahead of his death. Um, you know, one sense is in the the multiple handwritten pages, which you know, kind of was like, oh, I'm sitting down to read this handwritten will. How much am I going to get out of this? In this well worded, uh, at least to the layperson, this well worded will here. It nonetheless, I think, lays out this subtle case of regret. And here's why he wishes to leave uh, all his uh, estate, property, possessions, cash, cash investments to Mr. William Reeves, uh, though there has been a distance between them, though in the will, um, lowercase w, 
Uh, Gardner acknowledges that there are many William Reeveses out there, and he has no further contact info, but here's a little background on the guy uh, physically in terms of where he's lived, things like that. You sense that towards the end of his life, Nelson Gardner is trying to make up for the mistakes that we saw in this episode. This after proposing, instead of taking down the clan, that they go after uh, a magician who's going to harness the power of the sun into some kind of death ray. Yeah, in fact, there's even passing reference to the the um, property rights that uh, Minuteman franchise LLC has, of course, owned by Gardner, including Screaming Skull and Captain Axis. So kind of one wonders, you know, was Captain... The, the guy who said he was Captain Axis that the Minutemen needed to, you know, go go handle, like how real was that threat or mm. or how cooked up was it? This is a particularly great uh, offering of PDpedia, if only just for this will, uh, lowercase w, because you really just you get more character stuff from somebody at the end of his life reflecting, and there's almost more questions than answers. But that is a satisfying thing. Speaking of weapons and with the Cyclops machine, one has to wonder, is that any way connected to what Lady True is doing with the Millennium Clock? Is this a giant Cyclops projector of some time, uh, of some time, of some type? We know that we've been told it tells what time it is. Is it? maybe telling us the time that, you know, the country is racist and needs to be awakened from this. Well, one of the other PDpedia documents is uh, ostensibly from the, uh, the Tulsa Star Sentinel. It's kind of a very kind of gossipy, breezy article here, you know, with that kind of sense of, uh, if only we could tell you, dear leader, the elusive and reclusive mystery woman declined our every interview request. So it kind of has that tone, uh, but they do have a uh, uh, a PR, somebody from Lady True's PR department who's on the record that they're quoting, um, and they, <laughs> they, which is to say the show, through this mechanism of PDpedia, uh, puts forth the, the theory, is the uh, Millennium Clock actually a time machine? Um, and then there's the PR department response, no, it's made of clean M-class technology, cutting-edge microfusion engine, powered by synthetic lithium energies, harvested from particles collected uh, from the MIT Super Collider in Burma. Um, so it is just a clock. Now, I don't buy it that it's just a clock. I dare say it's probably not a time machine. It, the, the show would be poorly served to put forth the time machine theory just to take it away on PDpedia, which is where the most ravenous ravenous fans are going, and then turn around and say, no, it's actually a time machine. But this idea that it's got, you know, some of this synthetic battery technology and super collider particles, I mean, this clearly is more than a clock for telling time. I know we had discussed perhaps it's time on a century scale, on a millennia scale, on a multi-millennia scale, but, you know with what three episodes left i think increasingly we're turning towards this this uh ticking clock of the millennium clock this along with the detail also present in the pdfpedia this week about lady true's organization giving all these citizens of tulsa 
flat screen TVs. Yes, the brand new uh, slash recently uh, allowable uh, technology. Let's not forget that the first uh, PTpedia trove talked about the reintroduction of technology. Um, now that we had, you know, gotten over the bad, bad Doctor Manhattan cancer-causing stuff. Uh, and side note, there have been references sprinkled throughout these past uh, several weeks of, you know, well, maybe that was a theory. Maybe Doctor Manhattan didn't cause cancer which of course we know uh to be the case but i don't know week after week i keep going back to pdpedia and really enjoying what it has to offer and since we fit the other two pete let's hit one more which is uh a september 22nd uh memo from agent blake uh writing from the field in tulsa and i mean second or third line yeah pd i read your bleeping memos <laughs> a little weird considering you could just turn to me and say uh any slash all of this s while we're in the same physical space i mean it's it's laurie blake speaking here uh mirror guy references this is just so it expands the world of the show in a satisfying way that lost's online stuff never ever ever did i feel called out as a pd <laughs> Well, I mean, look, we know that uh, we know that Agent Blake would be reading your memos without any question. I think uh, I think Agent Petey, perhaps a little less a little less confident, although one wonders, has his confidence increased since the last time or the penultimate time we saw him and Agent Blake uh, together, about which I'm talking about in the boudoir. How did Will know about the clan robe in Judd's closet? He can't get up the stairs, um, at least in a wheelchair. We've seen him walk, but he now appears younger. There's got to be some kind of lady true biotech at work there. So how did he know about that? Well, either lady true biotech or, you know, or lady true and company. Uh, clearly, there's a closeness between Will and Lady True. Uh, I would not rule out, you know, Lady True sent the most spry of her ladies to go spy, or Lady True used her, um, you know, her own uh, uh, X-ray telescope or something of that sort. Um, I like the idea that it's a Lady True connection of some sort. And then last for me, Matt, first episode... And I think the one to not break the the A story here by including a Vite chapter. Yes, and I think that was probably the right choice given that most of this episode, uh, I mean, frankly, everything in the episode except for the barest beginning and the barest end, all about this will flashback story this important story reflecting not just on ooh character from the comics secret origin revealed uh but also really digging into a story about race about bias uh transporting us to a time and place that on the one hand we can barely imagine on the other hand unfortunately seems far too familiar so i think to do all of that with a little sizzle in the beginning which oh by the way was just bringing us up to speed as to the myth of hooded justice, which was about to be deconstructed and then giving us the barest bit at the end to say, and tune in next week for more story. Uh, I think it was definitely the right choice to not have any bit of Vite, particularly since we left off with our own sort of Vite cliffhanger last time. 
I'm picking up some psychic transmissions from our audience. Pete, our traditional poll uh, on Twitter started with one star pumped, got 4%. Two stars masked, got 0%. Three stars, trust in the law, got 4%. And I know I said it in the last week or so for, I think, Watchmen, perhaps Mandalorian. I know I said, oh, we don't see stuff. We don't tend to see votes this high. But four stars, hooded justice, got 92%. I guarantee that is the highest number we've seen for a broad poll on anything that we have uh, we've covered on Twitter. And then when you throw out the erroneous one star, we know that that person meant to give it four stars makes it even higher. I mean, this is, I think, something that we can look at this decade as a landmark piece of television. A couple of tweets as well. The first one from our pal 084, uh, who goes by OOH84. F-O-U-R. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was the best superhero origin story I've ever seen. So certainly in line with uh, with your uh, statement there, Pete. And then a tweet from James. It's at Big Killen. Very intense. I could feel his rage. Does the projector have ties to Ozzy? So Pete, does he? I don't think it does. I, I think there are separate conspiracies happening here. Pete can't wrap up this section without reading an email from 7th Cavill Steve. Uh, a shorter email this time. He says, Dear Pete and Matt, hello from the Motel 6 in Laramie, Wyoming. I'm pretty shocked at the shot across the bow that this episode has given us. I get telling an artsy-fartsy story, but to attack the viewers, I don't get it. Sincerely, 7th Cavill Steve. I'm not completely sure why he feels this is an attack. Um, this origin story of a black man who never gets the credit for being the inspiration for the Minutemen, which are later the inspiration for the Watchmen, uh, to set that record straight. There's no attack here. It's all put into the light. Speaking of the light, Pete, keeping the lights on for the podcast is everybody who goes to patreon.com slash fantastic geek and helps support us, particularly this time of year. It's going to be a doozy of a bill, methinks, and uh, we are so proud to be listener supported, talking the back catalog, current adventures, and future plans, all helped out by our patrons. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. All it takes is a dollar a month to get you in that door. A mere quarter a week. Can't contribute now or at all? Well, get yourself to Apple Podcasts and it is free to leave a rating. Uh, we'd prefer the five, but, you know, less than that. It's your opinion. And then if you can leave the review, puts us in even greater chance of winding up in people's ears. Pete, so many goodies there on the Patreon page and lots of plans to add even more for 2020. But right now there's a treat. Pete, it's talking to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,889 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter is looking back lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. 
facebook.com slash fantastic geek with a ph all one word like it today well pete we will be talking the mandalorian this star wars saturday then before you know it pete we'll be back watching the next episode of watchmen i can't believe we're about to enter the final third of this show but that's what happens december 1st episode 107 of watchmen with that pete though time to wrap this up so i will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word cheese <laughs>